You may be seated. That's a remarkable verse, isn't it? The last one that Kelly just finished reading, and especially the final part of it. John 14, verse 23, I'll put it up on the screen so you can follow along once again. If anyone loves me, Jesus says, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him. And this part right here, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Church, we really must be sure to not miss the magnitude of what this verse is saying. Jesus here teaches that God comes to make his home in us. In us. Do you feel deserving of that honor? I know I don't. You know, I'm the perfect age to have grown up playing the educational computer game, Where in the World is Carmen Sandiego? I hope I'm not alone in that. Thank you, Mandy. Uh, For those of you who might be unfamiliar, Carmen is a world-class villain and thief who steals valuables and commits lavish crimes all over the world. Then you, as the player, you act as a detective tasked with finding clues and using your knowledge, particularly within the fields of history and geography, to track her and her henchmen down. And despite its overwhelmingly, admittedly, simple premise, the game and the character became wildly popular. After it was invented and created in the 80s, it spun off into numerous other games and even TV shows, even as recently as 2019, when Netflix got into the Carmen Sandiego scene. And I honestly think, this is, this is truthful, this is, this is, I think part of why this is so popular is just how catchy her name is, right? Carmen Sandiego, it just it sort of rolls off the tongue, doesn't it? And the question, the question posed in the original game's title, it also really hooks you in too, doesn't it? Where in the world is Carmen Sandiego? Gives off this impression that a wild, mysterious chase is coming. Where in the world is Carmen Sandiego? We have no idea. Like, that's the point, right? We don't know. She could be literally anywhere, and we we have to solve it. We have to track her down. We have to solve the mystery. Where in the world is Carmen Sandiego? But friends, are you not so glad? Are you not so glad that it's not a mystery where God is? Where God is? Where in the world is God? It's a good question, isn't it? Where on earth is God? Where does God make his home? And again, John 14, 23 teaches us with abundant clarity the answer to that question. And stunningly, the answer is this. We are God's home. We, we are God's home. Now, we need to put John 14, 23 back on the screen because I want to make sure we adequately cover the first part of the verse. We've already seen how extraordinary the end of this verse is. And we, God and the Father, God the Father and God the Son, Jesus, will come to Him and make our home with Him. But what about the first part of this verse? If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him. So if you're anything like me, that clause, the first part of this sentence, makes you a little bit nervous. Or at the very least, it sparks a really good question. Something like, wait a second, do I have to keep Jesus' word before God the Father loves me? Read one way, absent a broader context, you might come to that conclusion, which is why it is so vital for us to keep verses and passages accurately situated within their more expansive text. 
You see, for instance, with, with this verse here, if we go back to the beginning of this overall section in John's gospel, we clearly discover that the controlling and commencing idea for the whole section is actually God's initiating love toward his people. Remember with me that there's a major change and shift and break within John's gospel between John chapter 12, the end of it, and the beginning of John chapter 13, verse 1. Here now, a little bit later, in John 14, the end of that chapter, we find ourselves still within that John 13, 1 section. And if we look back at the beginning of this broader section, here's what we find. Jesus, uh, reporting on Jesus' emphasis towards his followers in this moment. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, and here it is, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. So the broader, as we zoom out, the broader context of John 14, 23 reminds us that God's initiating love towards His people in Christ Jesus and that love persisting to the end, that controls this entire section. And actually, what's great about the Bible is that we don't just have the Gospel of John. And of the Apostle John's writings, we don't even just have the Gospel of John. Later, in one of the Apostle John's letters, he actually makes it even more abundantly clear, the ordering of loves, so to speak. In the letter of 1 John, in that letter, 1 John chapter 4 and verse 19, he writes again with abundant and beautiful clarity, we love, why? Because he, God, first loved us. We love because he first loved us. So friends, we do not have to be nervous as we zoom out and explore the broader context of Scripture, we see that we are loved first. We are adopted first. We become sons and daughters first. God comes and makes His home in us first. Do you see? God initiates, we respond. God initiates, we respond. But then, at that point, I do think, and at this point, I do think it's worth exploring what is true about God's home. That's an interesting question, isn't it? What is fundamentally true about God's home? You know what I mean by that? I think every home has things that are fundamentally, has characteristics that are fundamentally true about it. I think that's accurate for my home, the Brandis home. I wonder if it's also accurate for your home as well. There are just characteristics that are fundamentally true. And so that's the question I want to explore this morning. What is fundamentally true about God's home as revealed to us in this passage, the end of John chapter 14. Here's the first one. This is fundamentally true about God's home. We are not in charge. We are not in charge. And I don't even really have to tell you who is in charge, do I? Like you're already there. It's not our home. It's God's home. He is in charge. He's in charge. Verses 15 and 21 of this passage outline this fundamental truth with clarity. So I'll put them both up on the screen for us. Jesus in this part of John, especially in these, this passage and more broadly, he's very circular. Um, he, he runs back around and around some of the same themes and teachings and delves into them more deeply. So we'll put a couple of those moments where these threads come together here on the screen for us at one time. First with verse 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. 
And then verse 21, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Now again, I hope we remember what we've already covered thus far, which will keep us from thinking, will guard us from thinking that these verses teach that we earn God's love by way of our obedience. We don't. We don't. Author and scholar D.A. Carson is helpful as we seek to continue to understand the dynamic, the tension that's on display in these verses. He writes this, the idea is not that the believer initiates this relation of love by demonstrating obedience and that Jesus and his father simply respond. After all, the gospel of John, and we saw this back in John 13, 1, after all, the gospel of John repeatedly makes it clear that the initiative in the relationship between Jesus and his followers finally lies with Jesus or with his father. The idea, rather, then, is that the ongoing relationship between Jesus and his disciples is characterized, catch that word, is characterized by obedience on their part and thus is logically conditioned by it. They love and obey Jesus, and He loves them, in exactly the same way that He loves and obeys His Father, and the Father loves Him. And I'm especially struck, I already pointed it out, I'm especially struck by that word, characterized, and by that phrase. The ongoing relationship between Jesus and His disciples is characterized by obedience on their part. And just to be clear, I'm especially struck by this part of the quote because I am especially convicted by this part of the quote. It prompted this week for me some, some genuine and serious self-reflection. Does my life regularly reflect a characterization of obedience to Jesus out of love? Does my life regularly reflect this fundamental truth that we are not in charge. I am not in charge. And what about you? Does your life reflect congruence with this fundamental truth of God's home, that you are not in charge? That out of the intimate relationship of love that you have with Jesus, you, you delight in obeying Him and what He commands. Your life can be described as being characterized by obedience based on the love that He has shown to you and the love that you respond in showing to Him? Does your life reflect this reality that you are not in charge? And maybe you're here today and you are realizing even right now in this moment that your life has never truthfully reflected this reality. You've always been the one fully in charge of your life and have never actually surrendered, fully surrendered genuinely surrender to God's initiating love toward you. And I think it's important for us to park on this idea for a moment for the sake of crystal clarity. Because if I'm describing you, then what's also true is that the statement, we are God's home, does not yet apply to you. Now, mercifully, it can. Because all it takes is for you to surrender to God's initiating love, for you to confess and admit that your control, your full control over your life will only and ultimately lead you down a pathway towards sin and death. Friends, salvation from that tragic pathway, from that tragic reality comes from surrender. It comes from confession and repentance, and it comes from trusting in God. It comes from ceding control to Him. 
It comes from saying with our lips and with our lives, you are in charge. I'm not in charge. I surrender to you and your love, and I love you back. Help me to demonstrate that love by obeying you and by obeying what you command. Now, importantly, we must note that the steps, those steps of confession, repentance, and surrender, they remain important even for those who are Christians. And not because we lose our salvation when we stumble and God departs from dwelling within us. We don't. He doesn't. But because we are each one of us imperfect, broken vessels. We're broken fixer-uppers of houses on this side of Christ's return, on this side of Christ's second coming. We remain, and I know you feel this with me, if you're a follower of Jesus, we remain, even after our salvation, we remain engaged in a constant battle against the world, our flesh, and the devil, and obedience to Jesus and His commands is hard. It's hard. It is. It's challenging. The reality with it is that we need lots of help, which actually, brilliantly, is the second fundamental truth about God's home. The first is that we are not in charge, but that's the second. We need lots of help. You and I, we need lots of help if we are going to be remade into a home fit to be a dwelling place for God Almighty. We need lots of help. I know you're all familiar with the phrase, it's very regular and common parlance, I got this, <laughs> right? Have you seen this one? You know, I, I said I got this, really I'm fine, right? The phrase I got this, if you just Google that, I got this memes, you're going to have a lot of options to choose from. And I chose this one because I think it so hilariously communicates the irony of the phrase. Because a lot of times when someone is yelling, I got this at you, what it means is they don't got this, Right? And church, the reality is we don't got this. We don't got this. We do need lots of help. And Jesus knows that. Brilliantly, beautifully, helpfully, Jesus knows that. Look what he says in verses 16 and 26. We'll put them on the screen one after another here to see how it is that we are given help. Jesus says, And I will ask the Father... And he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Which, again, within the context of this section of John is really important because there's trouble in the air, there's confusion in the air, there's heartache in the air for lots of different reasons. But one of the reasons is that Jesus has just told his disciples that he is about to depart from them and where he is going, they cannot yet go with him. So they're sad because of that, and so Jesus presses into, he says, okay, the helper is coming, another helper is coming, and this will be a helper that what? That never will depart, that will be with you forever, okay? That sounds good, that sounds, that sounds like it's going to be helpful to us, it sounds promising, but who is the helper specifically? Okay, then verse 26, but the helper, the Holy Spirit... Jesus clarifies, the helper is the third member of the Godhead, God the Father, God the Son, Jesus speaking here, and then God the Holy Spirit, the third member of the Godhead. But the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things, and he will bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. So again, the word helper highlighted in both of these verses refers to the Holy Spirit, and, and the, the title almost that Jesus gives in the original language, it's a really unique word. 
And it's translated for us with a capital H, helper here, but various other English translations will render that word differently. And, and knowing what all of the possibilities are for how we could translate this word, I think does aid us in seeking to understand its robust meaning. So in addition to helper, it could also be translated, and maybe your, your Bible translation says advocate, counselor, or comforter. The message paraphrase renders it friend, which I really like that one as well. And the advocate and counselor translations should bring to mind for us a courtroom. You have an advocate in a courtroom. You have a lawyer-type counselor in a courtroom. And that's definitely part of the dynamic that's at play here. Again, think back to the flow within the beginning of this passage, to how tightly connected verses 15 and 16 are. Jesus starts in verse 15 with a bold call for His followers to demonstrate their love for Him by obedience to His commands. And then immediately in verse 16, knowing that we are going to stumble and trip our way forward on that journey, He then immediately assures us that we will have an advocate, a counselor with us forever. Almost the idea is like a defense attorney. A defense attorney who will petition the judge on our behalf for grace and mercy. But that's not all. There's more. This helper, this advocate and counselor will also act as a comforter to us. And it's in the old Elizabethan English use of that word when it used to mean encourage, strengthen, to aid. And again, the message paraphrase, in the helper we have with us a trusted and true friend. So no matter how you slice it, no matter how you translate it, the overarching point is that in the Holy Spirit, we have an incredible gift, an incredible resource, an incredible amount of varying degrees of help. We have someone who is with us forever. Verse uh, 26 again, right? What does the Holy Spirit do? One of the things is He teaches us all things and brings to mind all remembrance of what Jesus has said to us. He helps us to sort out the lies of the evil one from the truth of Jesus and His Word. And in the Holy Spirit, we have that defense attorney, that advocate, that counselor that picks us up and dusts us off when we stumble and fall on this journey. Friends, the Holy Spirit, don't miss this, the Holy Spirit makes it possible for us to actually obey Jesus. In our own flesh, in our own power, we are going to fail and so God the Father and God the Son, they send us another helper to dwell within each one of us, to, to make it possible for us to respond to God's love and obey Jesus and what He commands. We need lots of help. And thanks be to God, we have it. In the Holy Spirit, in the helper, we have the help that we need. The next fundamental truth of God's home revealed in this passage comes immediately following verse 26, which we just had on the screen and is all about Jesus clarifying that the Helper is indeed the Holy Spirit. And this is interesting to me because I think it indicates another tight connection in Jesus' thinking between the Holy Spirit's work as our Helper, that's verse 26, and where Jesus goes next and the concept and teaching that He introduces in verse 27. So let's see those together now. That verse, verse 27, reads, Peace, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Notice this. Not as the world gives do I give to you. 
not as the world gives. My peace I give to you. Indeed, let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You see, it seems to me that Jesus is indicating that one of the ways that the Holy Spirit is going to help us is by aiding us on the universal human journey. It's universal. We are all on this journey to try to find and locate genuine peace. Every single one of us would love to have more peace in our lives. And I think Jesus is teaching that the Holy Spirit will aid us on that universal human journey. Everybody's looking for this. I think that's partly why Jesus mentions the differentiation of what the world offers. Do you see that? Not as the world gives do I give to you. Jesus knows, and I've observed this as well, maybe you have too. Jesus knows that there are a lot of people that are out there today in the world that are peddling peace. There's a lot of people out there that are trying to sell peace, but they don't have the real, genuine artifact. They've got something that maybe looks like peace, smells like peace for a little while, maybe even feels like peace, but at the end of the day, it's a counterfeit. It will ultimately be revealed to be as hollow as the center of a donut and as shallow as a kiddie swimming pool. There is only one place that we can find true, genuine peace that each and every single one of us is after. The world is peddling something, but it's peddling a fake. It's peddling a counterfeit. Carson is helpful here again. He says, the world promises peace. It even waves the flag of peace as a greeting, but it cannot give it. Jesus, on the other hand, he displays transcendent peace, his own peace, my peace, throughout his perilous hour of suffering and death. And by that death, he absorbs in himself the malice of others, the sin of the world, and he introduces the promised messianic peace in a way that none of his contemporaries could have ever imagined. The Pax Romana, quote-unquote Roman peace, was won and maintained by a brutal sword. Not a few Jews thought the messianic peace would have to be secured by a still mightier sword. But instead, church, hear the good news of this. Instead, it was secured by an innocent man who suffered and died at the hands of the Romans, of the Jews, and of all of us. And by his death, he effected for his own followers peace with God and therefore the peace of God which transcends all understanding. Amen. So here it is then, the third fundamental truth of God's home as revealed to us in this passage. We are a peaceful home. We are a peaceful home. Many of you know that uh, Ashley and I have three wonderful young sons, Bevan, uh, Owen, and Ethan. Here they are on Halloween. Everybody can go, aww. Aww. <laughs> got Captain Hook and Peter Pan and uh, the, the alligator, the crocodile that tries to get Captain Hook. So it was pretty great. Um, these three boys, Bevan will be eight in April. Owen's actually turning six this upcoming Tuesday. Happy birthday, Owen, uh, in just a couple of days. And Ethan turned two back in December. And they truly are the delight of Ashley and I's life and an incredible uh, privilege, an incredible privilege for us to get to parent and raise. They also have an unsurpassed ability to create an extraordinary amount of chaos, right? Can I get an amen in the house? Chaos in a variety of ways, too. It's not just limited. Certainly in volume, my word, the three of them can be loud. 
chaotically loud. They can make some noise. And of course, in physical mess, our house doesn't often stay clean for long, you know. They also can be experientially chaotic. That's a phrase that I've coined as I've thought about living life with them. A great example of experientially chaotic uh, is just about every single day when we sit down for dinner at 6 p.m. It's just the whole experience of that is fast and loud and messy. All of the different forms of chaos explode experientially there at our dinner table at 6 p.m. Some parents say they have kids that eat really slowly. Like, I don't understand that. Like, it's like a hurricane in our house at, at 6 p.m. each and every single day. Ashley and I have to, like, trick them and eat, start eating dinner 15 minutes early just so that we're there together for a decent amount of time at once, right? There's beautiful, delightful, abundantly joyful chaos in our home, and yet Ashley and I would still love for this to be true of us. We are a peaceful home. That's what we're aiming for. It's one of the, the main goals of what, how we want to form and shape our home life is that this could be true. And, and friends, this can be true for us. This can be true because this is not, like Jesus is not offering serenity. Right? Just, serenity I give to you. Serenity I live with you, leave with you. That's not the kind of peace that's on offer from Jesus here. It's not serenity. It's something deeper. It's something more needed and more foundational for us. That is what is on offer from Jesus here in John 14, 27. And so even with the beautiful kiddo chaos in my home, the peace of Jesus is still possible. And we know this even in the life and ministry of Jesus. You have that incredible story where the disciples are shooing the chaotic kids away like, they, like Jesus doesn't have time for the chaos of these kids. But Jesus rebukes not the children, but his disciples when he says to them, let the little children come to me. And so the chaos of our home is not incompatible with, it's not mutually exclusive with the peace of Jesus on offer from him in John 14, 27. They can exist, and it's because this is a deeper peace. Fundamentally, the peace from Jesus is a, is a relational peace. It's about wholeness and integrity and connectedness. The peace from Jesus is about pushing back the darkness of division and disconnection. It's about fighting for unity and connectedness and wholeness. The peace of Jesus is what it binds up the brokenhearted. It heals wounds and diseases. This is the peace of Jesus, shalom and the Old Testament Hebrew understanding of it. This is what Jesus is offering, and it is different. It is different than what the world can give in terms of peace. And we need it. You need it. I need it. Our home needs it. The home of God needs it. The household of God, this church needs it. And so if it's possible for Ashley and I to pursue the peace of Jesus in our home, even with the chaos of the joy of our children... It's possible for you too. It is. And so are you doing it? Are you contributing to the peace of God in his home? Would, would people describe you as a person of peace? Would people describe you as a non-anxious presence that helps to fight back against the darkness of division and fight for unity and connectedness and relational wholeness? We are God's home, and we're a peaceful home. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you, Jesus says. And you know, I've been chewing on this truth all week, and I still can't quite get over it. The magnitude of this, 
The idea that we, we, us, you and me, we are God's home. I mean, just think about the purchase price necessary to make this even possible. Ashley and I had to buy a house last year. There was a purchase price. There was a negotiation. We signed about 850,000 pieces of paper, right, that indicated that we knew what the purchase price was and what we were going to have to pay to make this house our own. And even that purchase price for our physical home here pales in comparison to the purchase price that God paid in order to make us His home. Do you know what I mean? Like, track with me on that. One of the metaphors that the Bible uses for the sacrifice of His Son, Jesus, is that of ransom. That's a financial term. Ransom is a purchase. It's a price. What God is doing is He is ransoming us. He is buying us back. He is purchasing us back from our sin. To do that, to ransom us and to make His home in us, God had to buy the house. And the price to buy the house was astronomically high. Right? Because think about the gap that exists. Think about the divide and the chasm that exists between our rebellion, between our sin, between our rejection of God and His holiness and His perfection. That gap, that chasm is so wide that only His Son's life, death, and resurrection could hope to pay for it. The Creator and Sustainer of all things has nothing more precious, more priceless to give than Himself. And that is precisely the price that he paid for the right to make us his home. We are God's home. Can you even believe it? Reflecting on this remarkable truth, the Christian mystic and Saint Teresa of Avila, she wrote this. If I had understood, as I do now, that in this little palace of my soul dwelt so great a king, I would not have left him alone so often. But what a marvelous thing that he who would fill a thousand worlds and many more with his grandeur would enclose himself in something so small. Since he is Lord, he is free to do whatever he wants. But since he loves us, he adapts himself to our size. So then, We ought to simply close our eyes and go within. We ought to slip into the center of our souls, for this is where the Beloved is. This is where the Beloved has been all along, the only place in the universe the Beloved wants to be, inside us. We are God's home. Let's pray. God, I want to just take a minute give a couple of seconds of silence to allow us to slip into the center of our souls to find you, our beloved, there. What an overwhelming truth, God, that indeed if we are Christians, if we have surrendered our lives and trusted in your son Jesus, that you have made your home within us. May we continue to grow in understanding the magnitude of that phrase and all of its implications. And may we, God, just continue to take steps forward of having our home being remade and refixed and refinished into a dwelling place that is suitable for that. We need to because we're not in charge. It's your home, not ours. We need lots of help, so thank you for the Holy Spirit. And Lord, may one of the outcomes of the work being done in us 
as individuals and as a collective people be that we are more and more and more a place of peace, a home of peace. May that increasingly be true of us, God. Thank you for the opportunity to get to do that today and every day. And we pray this in the name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior.